Lord God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to look into your word. I pray for your insight and your wisdom. I pray that as we study together, we would learn and we would be able to apply the truth of your word. We just thank you for this time in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you've ever played golf. There's something called a mulligan. And uh, I did that quite often when I played with my dad. You know, one place we played, there was first tee was over a lake. And I'd hit the ball, and it'd go in the lake. And I'd say, mulligan, pull out a ball, and hit it again. And three or four of those would go in the lake. And he said, let's just play from the other side. <clears throat> anyway, um, this was going to be a mulligan in the sense that since nobody understood what I said the last time in this chapter, <laughs> I thought, let's go back and do that chapter again. Uh, that being said, it's not entirely the same sermon because every time you study, God teaches you new things. And, and if you remember last time, that's great. I think you'll see that there's some things that are totally different as we look at this. And one of the things that I was looking through is I was thinking about this whole passage with Elijah, the prophets of Baal, the people of Israel, is that it's all about choice. It's all about decisions. And um, I thought about decisions and how... You know, what are those most important decisions that we make in life? And, um, you know, we everything from choosing what we're going to wear to what we're going to eat, all of those are decisions we make every day. And then there are those that have a whole lot bigger impact on us. Decisions like, where am I going to go to college or what kind of career am I going to have? Uh, and, and Or the one, you know, who, who am I going to have a, as a life partner? Who am I going to marry? In many years I was in Bible college and I met in, I met this young woman and I chose to ask her out and miracle of miracles she said yes and we went out and after a little while um, she agreed to marry me the thing that was for me was fascinating was I went out on that one date and I told my sister the next day that's that's the lady I'm going to marry and uh, you know eventually Carol said the same thing it took some time I had my choice already made and then she had to make her choice and. And um, we made that decision, and God has blessed us 45 years that uh, we have together now, and I praise Him for that. <clears throat> so we're going to take a look at Elijah from that aspect of choices this morning. I want to really look at the choices that are being made here. And go ahead and put that first slide up there. Uh, we kind of went through this as we started this whole series, and the series is in Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Um, and, and in each of the phases that you see up there, each of those parts of Israel's history, they had issues with idolatry and sin and having to go back and choose to follow God. And, and that's such an important thing when we think that through. God called Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to a land that he was going to give him. And, and Abraham chose to go ahead and follow God, and, and he went. Um, they spent a whole lot of time, several generations, grew in that land of promise as they lived in, in tents and moved around. And um, eventually they ended up down in Egypt for 400 years. And that was part of God's plan as He grew them into a nation in the land of Egypt, which of course ended with them being in slavery for a period of time. And then along comes Moses, and Moses is the deliverer. And, and Moses, even though he didn't want to be the leader, becomes the leader that God wanted him to be in. And he helps the people make that choice. Okay, you know, God is leading. Let's go. Let's follow the direction that God is taking us into the wilderness. 
Of course, they go to Mount Sinai where God enters into a covenant with Israel and He gives them the Ten Commandments, Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7, it says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. And so there you go already, right from the very beginning of, of the nationhood. He's telling them, listen, this is, this is something that you need to constantly remember. You need to choose to follow me and only me. You can't try to follow me and then whatever else you want. It doesn't work that way. Let's go back to the chart again. And so they spend 40 years in the wilderness. Moses dies, and just before the end of the promised land, Joshua leads the people. Um, I'm sorry, Moses died just before the end of the promised land. Joshua leads them in the conquest of the nation. And at the end of his life, he gathers all of the people together. And again, he's laying the choice before them, just like Moses did, just like others did. He's challenging them to choose to follow God. And you'd be thinking, okay, now come on, this has been happening all along. What's going on here? But look at what he says in, in his the last things that he says to the nation. Um, so fear the Lord and serve Him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates. In other words, in Ur. Somehow they had either gotten them again or they were being passed down, but there were gods that they were worshipping that were part of the Euphrates thing. And gods from Egypt. And he said, put those things away forever. Put them away forever. Get rid of them. And he says, serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. And he says, these gods are those gods. But then he goes on to say, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And he makes that choice. And he makes that choice very clearly and and lays that choice out there for them. And let's go to the next chart again. After, of course, that time of, of Joshua and the conquest, you've got the judges. And time after time after time, there are these cycles of, you know, they turn away from God, and then oppression comes in, and then a judge comes in to save them. And this is back and forth, back to, okay, you need to follow God. You were in this mess because of that. And then you've got the time of the kings. It starts with Saul, and then David, and, and, <clears throat> and eventually Solomon. And then after Solomon, you've got the kingdom split. And in First Kings, uh, in First Samuel, what the focus seem, it seems to be more than anything is that there's a shift from the judges to the monarchy. Now we're looking at some things in First Kings, and in First Kings 17 through Second Kings 9, we have a whole focus on Elijah and then on Elisha and how they interact with the gods of Israel. So that's kind of where we're at. I wanted to kind of give that background a little bit before we jumped in. <clears throat> before we, uh, before I took some time off here, uh, for which, you know, the Lord was so gracious to give me the, the amount of time to get better and be able to get back up here, um, we were just getting into this passage. So let's jump back into it again today. Uh, chapter 18 and 1 Kings verse 1. And we're going to kind of fly through this so we can get some of those applications. Later on in the third year of the drought, remember Elijah had prayed and prayed that God would bring a drought and judgment against the people, um, that they would come back to him. In the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go present yourself to the king, to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe 
in Samaria. Now, I remember Elijah had been staying, you know, up in the northern section there of, of the, <clears throat> just north of Israel. And, and he was there with a widow. And, uh, the widow and her son. And, and for three years, that's what he did. He, he ate what she provided. And God miraculously kept giving them flour and oil in order to, to be able to eat. I wonder what he's thinking as God says to him, okay, Elijah, go back. I mean, Think of what's happened in Israel. Three, three and a half years have gone by, and there's been no rain. So there's no crops, and there's no harvest. So this is, this is a land that has been devastated at this point. Um, they, they are, their economy is totally gone because of an agrarian-based economy, and they're just struggling to actually survive. And so I'm wondering what he's thinking as he goes back. Um, Ahab's view uh, of Elijah was, hey, you're the one that shut off the water. You shut off the rain. And Baal couldn't do anything about it. So if we kill you, then we're going to be okay. And, and Baal will be able to bring us rain again. So Elijah's death might have been really helpful in, in Ahab's thinking. Anyway, Elijah goes. And in verse 3, we meet someone named Obadiah. Uh, Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace, so he was kind of like a steward uh, over the the lands of the of the king. And and this is an interesting thing, thinking of who Ahab and Jezebel were, and the evil people that they were, and the evil things that they did. The th- third most powerful person in the country, Obadiah, was a devoted follower of the Lord. How does that happen? And how does he live through all of this? Obviously, God is protecting him, and part of that is he was in a position of authority and power. It says a little bit later right there that he had a hundred prophets of God that he put in caves and kept alive because of the fact that he was in the position that he was. And so he holds this high office in Ahab's uh, land and in, in the palace and is able to use it for good. Um, love the fact that it says he was a devoted follower. He was committed. He made that choice to honor God. How he did that in the situation he was in, uh, someday hopefully we'll be able to understand more of those details. But what an amazing man that he was able to pull all of that together. Um, <clears throat> so due to the severity of the continuing drought, uh, in verse 5, Ahab says to Obadiah, let's go out and look around and see if we find water anywhere. They're going to scout and see if they can find a spring, a brook, anything at all, uh, where they can find some grass for the for their horses and, and uh, mules to be able to eat. Um, and that just shows the severity of this thing. So Obadiah, just kind of to cover exactly who he is, in charge of Ahab's palace, though he is surrounded by Jezebel and the 400 prophets of Asherah, 450 prophets of Baal, Devoted follower of the Lord, saved a hundred prophets from Jezebel when she was trying to kill all the prophets of God. And here is Obadiah, verse 7, walking along, and he suddenly saw Elijah coming towards him. Obadiah recognized him at once, bowed low to the ground before him. Is it really you, my Lord Elijah? He asked. Yes, it is, Elijah said. And so then Elijah tells him, you go tell Ahab that I'm coming. And there's a really interesting reaction from Obadiah. Obadiah is scared to death that when um, he goes to tell Ahab that he found Elijah, Elijah's going to disappear like he did the last time. 
And that, at that point, then his, he would be the person that would be killed because he brought this news to the king and it wasn't true. Um, and so he reminds Elijah, maybe he didn't know that I, you know, I've been serving God in the midst of this horrible place. Um, and he was, again, concerned that he might be the one that would, would not make it. <clears throat> but in verse 15, after Obadiah shares his fears with, with Elijah, it says, But Elijah said, I swear by the Lord Almighty, in whose presence I stand, that I will present myself to Ahab this very day. So Ahab went to tell Ahab, so Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. Now, I find it really fascinating. Elijah didn't go into Samaria and look for Ahab. He sent word to Ahab, come out here and see me. I bet he didn't do that for very many people. <laughs> it shows a little bit of the of the who uh, the power maybe that he had and the respect, even though he hated him on one level, that Elijah had because Elijah sent for him and he came. Now, very quickly, just kind of an implication from the choices that Obadiah made. <clears throat> he chose to serve faithfully, doing his best even in a terrible situation, terrible place that he was working. And you just have to ask, how in the world could he do that? Well, part of it is God put him there. God protected him. God needed him to be there for things like saving the hundred prophets and keeping them from being destroyed. And so he chose to serve faithfully and do his best no matter what was coming. He just continued to serve. And then he chose to trust in God's power to work in this situation. How do you live in a place where there are 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and it says in, in the NIV, they eat at Jezebel's table. So he, she's providing for these people, most likely in, in the palace, and he's living in that situation, and yet he still chose to help those 100 prophets. You wonder, how did he get the water to them? How did he get food to them? And yet that's what he did to keep them alive. Obadiah chose to believe that God was worth serving, that he was worth sacrificing for. And I love the verse from Lamentations, that this is uh, maybe a verse that uh, it wasn't written until much later, but the thought there is something that Obadiah must have been aware of. The Lord is good to those who depend on him. And what, what an incredible verse. The Lord is good to those who depend on him. And I'm sure many times Obadiah said, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do it. If you aren't keeping me safe, I'm not going to make it. And he depended on God and God came, <clears throat> came through and kept giving him the strength and the help that he needed. And then just, just kind of an, another thought, if faith in God can survive in Jezebel's court, it can survive anywhere. And and I, you know, we don't have to face those kinds of trials, but we may be in difficult situations. And so we can look back on, on someone like Obadiah and say, okay, Lord, he trusted you. Help me to trust you. Help me to have that confidence in you that you are going to give me what I need in order to be able to live in a way that honors you, in a way that is obedient to you. I don't believe any of this was easy for Obadiah. I'm sure that it had to have been incredibly difficult. And yet I love the fact that he chose to obey God in that incredibly dark place, Ahab and Jezebel's palace. So like Obadiah, we are called to stand firmly on the truth of God's word, and we can choose to live out that truth 
in real practical ways. That's what we're called to do. So verse 17, um, when Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So it's really you, you troubler maker of Israel. And then Elijah, of course, I love it. He just responds, I'm not the troublemaker, you are. You and your family are the troublemakers. And um, he doesn't back down. You know, he faces Ahab face to face, and he, he, he tells him, you're the people that are causing this. You're the ones that have brought this drought on this nation. Your uh, choosing to, to worship Baal has caused everything that's going on right now. An interesting thing then, he tells Ahab to go to Mount Carmel and bring Israel and the prophets of Baal and to share it with him. And, and again, <clears throat> listen to how he says this in, in 19. He says, you're the troublemaker. And then he says in verse 19, now summon all of Israel to join me at Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. So <clears throat> here he is, the king comes out to meet him, and it's, uh, it's Elijah that's telling him what to do. Elijah is the one that commands the king to get the word out to the nation, and it probably took a week or so to do that, that everybody is to meet at the top of, <clears throat> of, of Mount Carmel, and he's to bring all of the prophets of Baal with him. Uh, and that's exactly what he does, with the exception that only 450 of the of the uh, prophets, 400 of the prophets of Asherah did not come. Now, <clears throat> let's go ahead and put the map up there very quickly. Why Mount Carmel? Uh, it's in the northernmost part of Israel. One of the things about Mount Carmel, if you study it out a little bit, uh, you discover that it <clears throat> was associated with Baal worship for a long period of time as well. So it's almost as if Elisha is saying to the prophets of Baal and to all the followers of Baal, we're going to go to Mount Carmel, which is a stronghold of what you think, Baals, and that's where we're going to have this showdown. In our terms, it's like he's giving them the home court advantage. Okay, We're going to your territory to make this happen. And so they get there. And the first thing Elijah does, thousands of people are there, plus the prophets of Baal and Ahab. Elijah stood in front of them and said, verse 21, How much longer will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And, and apparently what was going on is that people were kind of in flux and they would try to follow God part of the time and then follow Baal part of the time and hoping that maybe following both of them they wouldn't offend anybody. I think maybe that wouldn't one of the thoughts that's going through their minds. But Elijah says, you got to choose. You can't do this. You cannot follow both God and Baal. And the people's reaction to him saying this is total silence. They don't say anything. So he says, how long are you going to waver? How long are you going to continue trying to do this? Worship Baal and worship God. It can't be done. And there's no response. None whatsoever. And so, this is really what Elijah is doing. He's giving them a choice. It is one or the other, but not both. You gotta choose people. It's gonna be Baal or it's gonna be God, but it cannot be both. You can't do that. Um, they can't mix the worship of Baal with God. 
And then coming back to verse 21, then the net translation says this way, how long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? How long are you going to be paralyzed? How long are you going to wait to say, yes, I am a follower of God's, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and nothing's going to shake that. That's who I'm going to follow. But they didn't respond. Verse 22 to 24, Elijah gets everybody gathered around, and he says to the prophets of Baal, let's resolve it in this way. You guys take one of the bulls, and wood, and you build an altar, and you put the bull on the altar, but no fire. And I'll do the same thing over here. And the God that answers with fire, that's the God that is truly God. So, okay, Elijah, verse 25 says, uh, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls, prepare it, call on the name of your God, but don't set fire to the wood. So he says, you guys go first, go for it. And so, you know, these guys get over, there's 450 of them, so they're running around, getting the stones, getting the everything ready, putting the, the bull on the wood, and then they start to call out to Baal. And they call out and ask Baal to answer them. And it's interesting that he let them go first. On one level, what he's doing is saying, okay, you're going to go first, so, so you can pick, you can do all this, and quite honestly, you know, he was expecting it totally to fail, but, you know, they, they think, okay, we get to go first, and we'll get this over with. But they're crying out to Baal, saying, Baal, answer us, and, and it's just not happening. About noontime, verse 27, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip or asleep and needs to be awakened. And so they shouted louder and following their normal custom. So you've got 450 guys running around, yelling, screaming, hollering, telling Baal, you've got to answer us. And then they go take it to the next level. Following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. And the thinking apparently was that this was something they could do on themselves, some kind of penance they could do to make Baal respond. So that's really what they were doing with with that. That was part of what they did. Verse 29 says, they They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Now, I find it fascinating that Elijah is mocking them, but I think the reason for that was, hey, you got 450 prophets, the whole nation is supposed to be following Baal, you got Jezebel who wants to set Baal up as the god of the northern kingdom, and uh, okay, so let Baal show his stuff. And so he's taunting them and, and causing them to, to see it. And all the people that are watching are hearing this. All the people that are watching the prophets cut themselves and scream and holler and trying to get the Baal to answer are seeing that Baal doesn't do anything. He does not respond. The contrast is going to be huge now as Elijah takes the stage and says, okay, we're going to, we're going to move forward and do this. So he calls them over in verse 30. Uh, he says they all crowd around him. They repair the altar of the Lord. Um, <clears throat> they dig a trench around it, which is something that they hadn't done before. They put the wood on the altar. They put the um, bull on the altar. And then Elijah says, I want you to soak this thing. And they, I mean, they just pour water all over the bull, the wood, the altar. It fills up the trench. So this is soaking wet. Okay? And, and, and there's a reason for that. 
He doesn't want anybody to be saying, oh, well, you know, he, he pull, pulled a little trick and, and it was able to make it happen. And so, you know, the prophets of Baal are still probably over there screaming, hollering, and cutting themselves. And Elijah, at the time of the evening sacrifice, verse 36, prays a very simple prayer. There's no hysterics. There's no screaming and hollering. There's nothing but a simple coming before God and asking God to show who he is. Listen to what it says. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove, let it be known, show clearly today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. And Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. So this prayer was to show the people of Israel, listen, you think that maybe I'm the problem around here? The prophets of Baal and Ahab and Jezebel, they're the problem. They're the ones that have caused all of this. And so he prays that prayer. And verse 38 says, Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all of the water in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Now some have suggested that this was lightning perhaps. But the thing is, lightning doesn't normally dissolve everything in its path. It may set fires or split rocks or trees, but this is something so unique and so powerful. Think of it. You've got rocks, you've got wood, you've got a bull, you've got water all over the place, and the only thing that's left after this fire has done its job is dirt. There's nothing there. There are no rocks left. There's no, there's no ashes. I mean, it's just dry dust left behind. No wonder the people of Israel responded. They saw this, and they could not ignore what God uh, was doing through Elijah. And so the choice that Israel had to make was very, very clear. Are you going to choose to follow the God of Israel, or are you going to continue to follow and obey Jezebel and Ahab and continue down that path? There's an implication here. Elijah and later Elisha both fought these battles of showing the Israelites the clear choice that they had to make. Because over and over and over, the people drifted away, turned away, went back to to Baal, um, and, and they kept bringing them back to the choice. You are God's chosen people, and you should be following Him. And again, bringing that choice to them over and over. And as you read what the prophets do, that's exactly what they're doing all the way through. In every situation, the prophets are saying, okay, here, you need to choose. You need to follow God. You need to obey Him. And again, what a contrast between Baal and, and God. Baal had all kinds of sacrifices and, and all kinds of practices that, that ended up with all kinds of immoral things. And, 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 and that might have been attractive to some, and yet the reality is that there's nothing that came from that other than pain and hardship and judgment. And so Elijah was calling Israel back to obedience and commitment to God and God alone. Many years later in Israel's history, 
Um, Isaiah would write in Isaiah 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, and there, <clears throat> there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. And now he's speaking of Cyrus because he's looking down the road to what he's going to do with Cyrus. And, and he says, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Why would God do that? Well, verse 6 says, So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So if I choose to use a Persian king to help my people get back to the land, that's what I'm going to do. And the result will be that they will understand that He is God and there is no other. And so in choosing God, Isaiah reminds us that we are to have no other God before us. There is no other God. Uh, There was no sense of God being equal to any other God. He alone is God, Yahweh. Um, not at all like the Egyptian gods or the Canaanite gods or the Greek gods. I mean, they had a whole pantheon, a whole, if you will put it in our terms, they had a locker room full of gods that they could send out and do whatever. But they were worthless. And, and, and the reality is, Yahweh says, I am the Lord, there's no other. You, know, you may believe in Zeus and all these other things. It doesn't matter. The reality is, I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. None. And so Elijah makes it clear. They could not choose to worship both God and Baal. And you know what? Jesus said the same thing in Luke sixteen thirteen. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then you can take that and apply in all kinds of different ways. But what was the Lord saying? Jesus was saying, I'm here, worship me. Not the stuff of this world and none of the things that, that you want to pursue in those ways. You can't serve two masters. <clears throat> and we can't worship God and at the same time, Worship something else. And maybe we wouldn't use that word worship, but we cannot choose to obey God and then seek to fit comfortably into a world that hates Him. We need to be real careful with that kind of thinking. You know, the pursuit of wealth and pleasure or comfort, power, uh, pursuit of experiences, all those things can become someone's focus to the point where nothing else matters and they're pursuing those things. Uh, Carol, I've had several friends down through the years who have gotten sidetracked and moved in those directions where they pursue one or all of those things and and they lose sight of the fact that they belong to God and they've worshipped God. Paul actually spoke to that very thing in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where he says, Godliness with contentment is a great gain. A verse that uh, has challenged me for years because sometimes I'm not all that content. I wish I could say I've always been, but I haven't sometimes. Godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. How many times do we forget that? <laughs> and, you know, how many times do we really acting like, well, we're setting this aside, what, we're going to take it with us? We can't. And then he says something really fascinating. But if we have food and clothing... We will be content with that. I had to stop and ask myself, 
Can I honestly say that I'm content because I have food and clothing? Or do I have to have before I can be content? I know it was a simpler time back then, but they struggle with power and pursuing wealth and, and pursuing, you know, uh, pleasure. They struggle with those things just differently. And Paul goes on to say in verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now, Paul is not saying here that people who are wealthy are all evil and terrible and that they don't know the Lord. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that people who sell out to the pursuit of this one thing, whether it's, you know, uh, comfort or power or whatever, if they, if that becomes their sole focus, then no matter how much they get, it doesn't matter because they're not, they're not walking with the Lord. There were wealthy people in Paul's day, and he stayed with them, and he was supported by them. And so Paul's not saying wealthy people are evil. He's just saying, be careful of the temptation. Be careful of the trap, because there are foolish and harmful things that come if you make your pursuit of wealth your only goal. There's danger there. And that's what he's saying. He's not saying don't work hard and save money and, and be able to retire and and uh, take your grandkids to Florida? He's not saying that. Please understand. He's, he's saying, this can be very dangerous. Be careful. Make sure that God is a part of all that you're doing, even in those areas of finance. And then he says, for the love of money, or the love of what you can get with it, is the root of all kinds of evil. And he says, some people, eager for money, have wandered <clears throat> from the faith, and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's hard. It's hard to read those words. And it's hard to keep the balance because we need to work and we need to have funds and we need to be able to to buy the things that we need. I, I understand all of that. But the straight, simple reading, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with grief. <clears throat> One of the hardest things that Carol and I have dealt with down through the years is when when someone, many times it's gradual, all of a sudden we realize that they've left behind the things that they believe because they're pursuing this or that or the other thing at the exclusion of everything else. And those are hard things to watch. And they're hard things to talk about and, and, and to try to encourage that they consider walk, their walk with God. The other thing that struck me as I was reading these verses was that there are, if you, uh, if you listen carefully, you're gonna hear probably 20, 30 times in any given week of some kind of method that if you just buy into this program or into this product, you're gonna be able to make a ton of money without any work at all. I mean, then those things are out there and it's incredible. And I remember one time Carol and I were really hurting financially and, and, uh, I think I even had a part-time job at the time, but, we were still struggling, and so I was kind of looking into one of these things that sounded so amazing, you know. I think it was putting vending machines and stuff in places. And and um, I was sharing this with one of my friends at church, and he says, oh, don't do that. I said, why? He said, well, I did it. I said, really? How'd that go? He says, I'm still paying for the machines, and they don't work. They, they, they don't get placed. Uh, I place them, and people steal them. 
he says, don't, don't, don't do this at all. And I'm thankful God put him there. I mean, he learned a lesson the hard way. I learned it through him, and I was thankful that I didn't have to learn it the hard way. But what, that's what happens when we get twisted around and we begin to think that this is so important that I have this or I have that. or Rather than getting back to godliness with comfort, godliness with contentment is a great gain. And sometimes we need to go back there and just kind of remind ourselves of that. Um, God blesses in many different ways. The ability to be content in all things is one of those ways. He blesses by providing for needs and even many times wants. Um, but our thoughts and our pursuit must be our relationship with him and not pursuing his gifts. I think sometimes we see God as the giver of all these good things, and he is the giver of everything that's good and wonderful. But if what we're doing is seeing past him to the gifts, we're missing the point. We're missing the point entirely. So God blesses in lots of ways, and we're thankful for that. He blesses by providing for our needs, many times even providing for our wants. But our thoughts and pursuit must be the relationship with him. And then to relax about those other things. We can choose to pursue our relationship with God. And and we should because God is the one who says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. What do we take away from all this? What is the most important decision that we have to make? Well, career, house, marrying, um, those are important decisions. But you know, the most important decision you ever have to make is what will you do with the salvation that Jesus offers? That's more important than anything else. It's critical that you, resu- you, know, that you deal with the issue of, okay, I'm being offered this amazing gift of eternal life because Jesus came and died for me. It's a gift. I can receive it. What will I do with that gift? That's the biggest decision, because that is not only for here and now, but it's also for eternity. And it's one of those things that sometimes, if if we're in the church for a lot of time, we, we think maybe we've kind of just drifted into that. And it really comes back to it's a decision. It's a choice. I choose to come to Christ and say, I believe you died for me. And that's... That's where we need to be. Lord, I believe. I believe you died for me. And and to receive that gift, we can thank him for that. And, and that choice has to be the first choice and the most important choice we make as we follow Christ. Because we can ask for all of the other things and try to follow Christ, but if we've never accepted him as Savior, we never believed and resolve that issue of, I believed today that Jesus died. I, I believe that with all my heart, and I'm accepting that gift that he offers. And I'd love to talk with you further if that's something that you would like to talk about. But as followers of Jesus, we make many choices every day, and those choices that we make will impact our walk. First Peter three ten through 12 says this, For the scriptures say, I want you to enjoy life. If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, and then he goes on to list a number of different things. So what he's saying here is, would you like to enjoy your walk with Christ and, 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 and enjoy those blessings which he brings into your life? If that's something that you want, then he says, verse 10, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. 
Is that so that we can earn God's goodies? No, that's so that we don't lose fellowship with Him and end up drifting away. And so if we want to enjoy the blessing that God has, His presence in our lives, the things that He brings into our lives, we start out by saying, I will choose to speak what is good. I will turn away from speaking evil or things that are not truthful. That's one thing. So do you want to see God's blessing in your life? Verse 11 goes and says, turn away from evil, do good. So you want to see God working in your life and, and see you're growing in Him. It's, Paul says, really simple. I'm sorry. <clears throat> turn away from evil and do good. So you turn away from whatever evil it is, whether it's something that you're watching that you shouldn't, whether it's the way that you spoke to someone and belittled them. You turn away from those things. You confess those things, and, and, and you don't go down that path. Turn away from those things. And in place of that, do good. Choose to do good. And that comes in all kinds of different ways. It may be that you've seen someone, or you're, you're, in, you're in the... Somewhere and you hear someone being mistreated or spoken badly and, and you're able to come alongside and, and encourage them in that moment when they're hurting. There's all kinds of different ways where we can really do good. And it doesn't have to be something huge. But we do it because the Lord has placed us there at that point in time. So do you want to see God blessing in your life? Verse 11, search for peace and work to maintain it. Search for peace. There are some of us who absolutely hate confrontation and seeking for peace may mean just walking away and not dealing with the situation. Not particularly helpful, by the way. Um, Sometimes for that kind of person, it means to hang in there. And even when it's really uncomfortable, to continue to be bringing calm and words of peace and encouragement in, in a difficult situation. Or maybe you're the kind of person who sees that kind of thing happening and you say, yeah, I can win this. And um, again, that's one of those things where you say, you know what? You need to seek peace. And you don't seek peace by trying to hammer down your brother or your sister. It doesn't work that way. Uh, it may mean to humbly listen without speaking. And for some of us, that's really hard. But it's a good thing. Humbly listen without speaking. Then he says, pursue peace and maintain it. Choose your words with the help of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.29 Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. One of my verses that when I worked with the teens and took them to Mexico every year, I would have them memorize that because it was such a strong, strong emphasis on, hey, how are you going to talk to the people in that van when you've been riding with them for 21 hours? Peter ends by reminding us these things are important and our choices matter. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord, verse 12, watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their prayers, but the Lord turns His face against those who do evil. So the Lord is watching and He's listening, and He longs to continue interacting with us, but if we behave in a certain way, that chops off our communication with Him. Our sin gets in the way. And so the Lord wants us to come back, and and the Lord is watching, and those who do right, and who are pursuing 
him in the way that they're supposed to. They're, that walk continues. And so that's what we want to do, continue to walk in a dependent way, choosing to walk with the Lord, choosing to trust the Lord for strength, for all of the things that we have to do. And we don't even know what they're going to be many times. I have prayed the prayer, Lord, I don't have a clue what to do. Thousands of times. Because I've been in that situation. And I knew that without God's help, what I was doing would be a mess because I would mess it up. So we pray. We ask God to continue walking with us. Our walk of the Lord, we choose to walk with Him, not just by ourselves in our own way. And the choice is ours to make. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and thank you for the power of your word. I just ask this morning that you would touch me, touch each of us with your words and uh, this amazing story that we have heard for so many years, Lord, sometimes we miss the point. Help us not to do that. Help us to see the reality of what you've tried to communicate. And Lord God, help us to seek, to obey, and to choose to obey and follow you. We ask this in your name. Amen.